The Bob Murphy Show, episode 137. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show Today, I'm going to be talking with Tom DiLorenzo, who I'm sure many of you already know. But for those who don't, Tom is an economics professor at Loyola University. He is an Austrian economist. He's a senior fellow of the Mises Institute. And he's written a bunch of books on Lincoln, and he's not a huge fan of the guy. So the main thing we're going to be talking about in this interview is uh, his latest book, which is called The Problem with Lincoln. But as I say, Tom's got a whole bunch of other books in this genre, including Lincoln Unmasked. Um, besides that, though, we we also talk about some of Tom's earlier career, and he actually has published stuff in top-ranked economics journals, right? So don't buy the myth that Austrian economists can't do math, right? So we, we talk a little bit about that stuff as well. Let me just mention, um, if you've never heard somebody explain what the problem is with Lincoln, you know, if you just have gotten the standard treatment in your you know, grammar school, or do they even call it grammar school anymore? That's what they called it when I went to a Catholic school. In any event, if you just heard, that, oh yeah, Lincoln's great. He's one of the greatest presidents, if not the greatest, because he freed the slaves and saved the union. Who could possibly be against the guy? Then you're in for a treat, all right? Uh, let me just say, it should go without saying, but it needs to be said in today's climate. Obviously, Tom and I are not defenders of slavery. It was morally abhorrent and economically disastrous. But nonetheless, just because the southern states had slavery does not mean that it made sense for the north to invade them just as we're not committed to rooting for king george against the american colonists even though the 13 colonies breaking away had slavery right that wouldn't follow so likewise don't misconstrue this as an endorsement of slavery the fact that tom is vehemently opposed to the north's aggression against the south and in any event, besides that stuff, as you'll see in the interview, uh, there's more to it than merely, oh, Tom disagrees with the strategy of or the policy of trying to violently suppress the uh, secessionist movement. It, it's way more than that. Lincoln did things like even jailing northern opponents of the war, which doesn't really line up with our textbook views of Lincoln being the greatest president ever. So without further ado, here is my interview with Tom DiLorenzo. Well, Tom, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Please be with you, Bob. Good to see you. Nice seeing you. Uh, sorry, I think this is the first Mises University that I haven't gone to in 20 years. So Wow. <laughs> uh, well, we but miss you. I, I miss being there. Um, so I'm glad to get you on the show here. And I, as I always do with people who I know a lot of the listeners are going to know from beforehand, can you just give us the uh, quick version of your uh, superhero origin story? How did you how did you go from being a mild mannered youngster to, to the superstar you are today? <laughs> In five minutes or less, um, you can take you well, can take up to ten. <laughs> okay, well, uh, you know my biography. I guess well, I got you know I was an economics major in school in uh, college, and uh, I was influenced by a, a Chicago school professor of mine. In uh, my freshman year in college, uh, I ran across a bookcase in a classroom that had all the back issues of the Freeman magazine. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading, and I ended up reading like all of them. And, you know, I read all these articles by Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and William H. Hutt and all the old older generation free market economists. And that sort of got me hooked on, uh, on economics. And they were all... Uh, good writers too. I mean, most of them anyway were very good writers. So I really got into that. And I went to when I went to graduate school. Um, uh, the same professor sort of uh, turned me on to public choice uh, economics. So I went to graduate school um, back then. It was called Virginia Polytechnic Institute, VPI. 
As soon as they got a good football team, they changed the name to Virginia Tech. I guess it sounds more footballish. Virginia Tech, yeah. like Texas Tech, Virginia Tech. And so when I went there, so I went there to study under Buchanan and Tulloch in the Public Choice School. And uh, my first uh, first semester at Micro was taught by an, an Austrian economist, Richard Wagner, who uh, I think is still at George Mason. I don't know if he's retired yet or not. But he used Human Action by Ludwig von Mises and Milton Friedman's Price Theory as the textbooks. So, so I got a good good dose of Chicago price theory and um, human action mm-hmm. as a textbook. So ever since then, and that's when I decided that uh, my two big interests would be Austrian economics and public choice economics. And so, yeah, so I went, got my degree and uh, became a professor. I taught at SUNY Buffalo when I got out of school and then George Mason for eight years. And I ended up co-authoring nine books with James Bennett at George Mason. Our, our first one was called Underground Government, the Off-Budget Public Sector. It's about how um, the Cato Institute published it. It was about how, how uh, governments historically responded to tax revolts by pretending to comply with the taxpayer demands to uh, reduce taxes or reduce uh, spending or borrowing. But at the same time, they would set up off-budget enterprises, off-the-book spending, and spend anyway, that way, for various gimmicks. And so that was my first book co-authored with James Bennett, and we ended up co-authoring nine books uh, all together and, and a bunch of articles. Can I ask you, Tom, was one of them the Food and Drug Police? Yeah, we, uh, one of them was the Food and Drug Police. I think the, the subtitle was America's Nannies, Busybodies, and Petty Tyrants. Just, I don't know if I've ever told you this, just a little background. When I was an undergrad at Hillsdale College, I was in a debate that we organized on drug legalization and so I went to the library to get out everything I could. And a lot of it was real, you know, wonky stuff. That, And when I found your guy's book on that, I was like, oh, finally, some people who are really like hardcore. So anyway, that was like the best book. Well, you, must, you must be yeah. the one sale we had then, Hillsdale yeah. College. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, at the time, there was this hysteria over smoking, you know, the tobacco industry. And so we basically thought, well, these people aren't going to stop. They're going to go after Twinkies and Coca-Cola mm-hmm. and everything else in terms of tax, you know, trying to tax them out of business. And so and again, that book. And also, just it's I think worth mentioning, and I'll, I do want to hear the rest of your autobiographical sketch here, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but in the 1980s, I distinctly remember when they were doing things like banning smoking from restaurants and, and stuff like that, that people on the right would say, oh, what next? Are you going to, you know, ban sugary sodas and things? And I, I distinctly remember the advocates of the bands were just mocking them and saying, you fool, stop, you know, mudding the word. No one's going to go after your soda. That's never going to happen. Smoking <laughs> is a very serious thing. And yeah. of course, the, you know, the, yeah. the critics were right. The yeah. slippery slope, you know, did, did incur. Yeah, they even, uh, there, was, there was a guy that wrote a book, one of the leaders of the anti-smoking. And I've never been a smoker. I'm, I'm annoyed by cigarette smoke. I'm not, but uh one of the leaders, he wrote a little book that we ran across. It had a title, something like Legislative Approaches to Banning Smoking. And and so I, one of my interviews, I remember a radio interview, I said, well, these are prohibitionists because what else would you call legislative approaches to banning anything other than prohibition? And so I said, well, you know, that'll create black markets and you'll end up having kids being in contact with criminals to buy cigarettes like they would, you know, buy heroin now or something else. And they were all, uh, and, and of course, everybody uh, just lampooned me for saying that. Mm-hmm. So oh, that'll never happen. You know, they're never going to try to ban you know, things. But that was the name of the guy's book. And he was one mm-hmm. of the leaders of the, the whole movement to tax. Uh, to, it's, it's interesting, though, they, they always wanted to tax the daylights out of tobacco, but not ban it. Because the government, there's too much money in the government right. to raising taxes on taxing cigarettes. And, and booze, for that matter. And so uh, they, they, they never did ban it. Yeah, so I wrote that. We also wrote a book called Official Lies, How Washington Misleads Us, at the same James Bennett and I. It was kind of popular for a while. I think Jim actually wrote a, a, a sequel to that. I, I was busy on doing something else at the time, so he went ahead and wrote a, a sequel to Official Lies back in the day. We wrote a big, fat book on uh, called Destroying Democracy, too. Uh, we, we've got a big database of government grants, uh, that had gone, federal grants, that had gone to various so-called nonprofit organizations that are primarily um, left-wing political pressure groups. 
And so the phenomenon was government giving uh, billions of dollars every year to all these so-called nonprofits, supposedly to administer the welfare state or to feed the hungry and so forth. And they would use the money to lobby for higher taxes and bigger spending. And then when the government got the bigger spending money, they would give share some of it with the same groups. And it was sort of a circle that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so a racket. And we called it destroying democracy. Uh, it's the, the idea I got for that was uh, James Madison's famous uh, essay, number 10 in The Federalist, where he said uh, the violence of faction, which is basically rent-seeking special interest groups, have destroyed democracy everywhere. And so the book is about how the government not only enforces the constitutional limits on faction, but it actually feeds them with with, uh, taxpayer dollars and promotes them. That was the theme of that book, which was also published by the Cato Institute. We I think we published a couple of the very first books they ever um, published at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time uh, Bill Niskanen was the uh, not the president, but I think he was the had some big title at uh, at Cato. And uh, when when we went over the book, Jim Bennett and I went over the book with him, and he was I guess he would be be like the academic vice president at the time of that institution. And uh, he made a, he made a prediction. He said at the time. If your book is right, if this is right, that this is so important, this government funding of all these special interest groups, then Robert Bork will not be appointed to the Supreme Court because Bork was in the process of uh, being appointed. And, of course, mm-hmm. the rest is history. We know he wasn't appointed to the Supreme Court because all of these groups were very well organized and very well funded by the government, as Jim and I uh, wrote about in our book. And they and they defeated Bork and, and a lot more to that. Can I just ask – his, so his theory, Niskanen's, was saying because the government wouldn't want somebody like Bork on the court who would interfere with its extra constitutional prerogatives, so it would use all the interest groups that were in its pocket to sick them? Is yes. that, was that the idea? Yes, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Niskanen was a classic Chicago school guy, so everything has to have be a hypothesis test. And right. so when he, after he read our, you know, it's a big, long book. I don't know how many, I forget, it's 400 and some pages it's the largest book I've ever uh, co-authored or authored. And after you read it, he, he sort of summarized it into this, you know, short hypothesis that he proposed. Mm-hmm. He said, if Bork is defeated, then there's something to this book, that, that this is a very potent political force, all these government-funded special interest groups. Mm-hmm. But if Bork, if Bork gets on the court, then you and Jim Bennett have probably uh, – Overestimated the the clout or the power right, that these groups right. have, and so and so we were right. I and mean, I didn't throw it in his face at the time either. I just well, I mean, was he? I'm just out of curiosity. Was he saying it like with genuine sincerity, or was he saying it almost like you thought he believed? Of course, Bork's going to get appointed, and so therefore you guys are wrong. No, I think it was sincere. I think he was sincere uh-huh. about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah okay. I don't. I don't think he was uh, saying the latter. Yeah. So we, we wrote all these books like this, and we got into the, the nanny state was big. And, uh, and can, can I ask you, Tom, just I'm curious, did anybody counsel you or did you consider, hey, maybe I should focus on peer-reviewed journal articles for my career? And if I just write books for the public, I'm going to get pigeonholed mm-hmm. as a, you know, not serious academic? I, I always did both. I always kept, you know, for many years, not so much anymore, but... For all those years, you know, I got out of school in 1979. I got my PhD. Mm-hmm. And so and I published uh, a lot of articles. I probably published uh, in the next five years, probably, uh, I don't know, probably 25 or 30 journal articles, including two okay. of the American Economic Review, Southern Economic Journal, Economic Inquiry, Five in Public Choice, uh, International Review of Law and Economics. So I published all those and I got tenure at George Mason. Okay, for the listeners who don't know, the American Economic Review, that's like the top journal or, or, yeah. or you know, it's in the top three, right? So that's yeah. that's that's great. Austrians aren't supposed to be able to do that, Tom. No, I, I, I made a lot of Austrians angry, especially at George Mason. There were because there were some of the older Austrians, well, one in particular, who was uh, telling the younger Austrians at the time I got to George Mason the same year, uh, Don Lavoie, Jack High and Richard Fink. We're all Austrians got there and Walter Williams uh, got there a year before us at, at George Mason. But there was an older faculty member who who was uh, counseling the younger ones, not me, but the other three. 
as uh, don't even try to publish in the mainstream journals because if there's an Austrian bent to it, you don't have a chance. And uh, and that that person didn't really appreciate the fact that I was publishing in the mainstream journals mm-hmm. anyway. Can I ask you what they what the articles were? I mean, was it like a, just a technical thing, or was it oh, actually well, the, the AER articles were Jim Bennett and I worked on. Uh, uh, both of them were uh, sort of econometric articles on how Congress, members of the, the Senate and the House, spent their own personal budgets, and uh, and and so mm-hmm. it was sort of a public. It was a public choice topics more than Austrian economics topics, and it was published in the AER in the early '80s, and uh, we had uh, two of them there. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, so I did that, and I've, I've always kept my hand in that, and I, I published quite a bit in antitrust and regulation topics in, in uh, journal articles. But then, uh, you know, after you do so much of that, Jim Bennett convinced me that uh, we'll enhance your reputation more if you start writing books, because people are impressed by books. And plus, mm-hmm. it was more fun, and uh, and it gets, you know, kind of boring devoting your whole life to writing another 10-page journal article that no one reads, as a professor, because that's the coin of the realm in academe. Uh, mm-hmm. I even had a dean and my former employer uh, tell me that the publication of books is of no value. And I went back to her and said, even a Harvard University Press book? And yeah, they, they, wanna, they want the faculty to publish lots of short journal articles that nobody reads It's mm-hmm. uh, because it's a bean counting thing with, uh, with deans and administrators in terms of getting reaccreditation at their universities. And I just didn't want to spend my whole career doing that, right? Uh, working so that some dean can get a bigger job as a provost somewhere or a university presence in the, in the heck of scholarship. And, and I wasn't about to do that, although I've always kept my hand in it to some, some degree. Okay. So if we probably it's good to switch over to your, your recent book here, The Problem with Lincoln. Yeah. So before we jump in, can you, I'm sure people are curious what made you center on, you know, because you've written a bunch of stuff on Lincoln at this point. So how did you decide to, well, to pick a, that as a hobby? As a Civil War history was sort of interesting to me. So I'd read a, a lot of books. And and since I was living in, around Baltimore at the time, I even took courses at the Smithsonian in D.C. and went to lectures by all the big shot Civil War historians, James McPherson and and people from Princeton and people like that that would lecture at the Smithsonian. It was very interesting to me. And, uh, you know, I got to thinking, well, uh, maybe there's room for me. To, I knew there was a literature on the, sort of in the economic history on civil war, but it was sort of overwhelmingly on the slavery, the economics of slavery. And the more I started reading about Abe Lincoln, I realized that uh, he was a Whig for about 25 years before the Republican Party was even created. And the Whigs and Lincoln were all about economic policy. They were all about mercantilism, basically, protectionist tariffs, uh, government subsidies to build roads, canals, and railroads, and a national bank, bringing back uh, the national bank. That's what they were all about. And so I read the history books. There's a big economic thrust behind Abraham Lincoln's life, and I found they said almost nothing. And when I did find some of the, a couple of the books that were supposedly the, the book to read about Lincoln and economic policy, there was one by uh, Gabor Borat, who's a big name in Civil War history, I think he's, if he's still around, he's still at uh, Gettysburg College. And it was, I think it was called uh, Lincoln and the Tariff. And it says things like Abraham Lincoln was a good hearted man and he advocated protectionism because he wanted other people to prosper in the way he had prospered, which is a big bunch of nonsense and BS. To anybody who took Econ 101 in college would know that's a bunch of BS. And that was sort of the extent of the economic analysis of Lincoln's ideas that I found. So I said, well, there's room for me here. That's that's certain. You know, I, I need to straighten these mm-hmm. historians out here on that topic. And then the more I ran into it, I, I got into it. I found that he was a you know thoroughgoing mercantilist, you know, corporate welfare and a national bank. And then being a libertarian and being familiar with libertarian literature, you know, the more I read and I find that, you know, mm-hmm. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus and mass arrested tens of thousands of political dissenters, you know, wage war without the consent of Congress and, and uh, you know, confiscating firearms. So there's a libertarian story to be told also. And when I did read about these things, the historians know about all these things. They know he did all these things. 
the suspension of habeas corpus and the, the imprisonment even of a member of Congress who was uh, Clement Vallandigham from Ohio, who was his, his biggest uh, critic in the United States Congress, a Democrat from Akron, Ohio, imprisoned him. He had soldiers arrest him, out of, drag him out of his home in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, the historians, I, you know, I wanted to know, well, what are they saying about this? And I, I discovered that to be a Lincoln scholar, you have to look at things like this. And if you can think up a half a dozen or so rationales or excuses for why he had to do it, then you're a Lincoln mm-hmm. scholar. And I wasn't buying it. I thought it was all spin and, and a distortion of the truth. So those two things, I thought the historian mentioned economics, but they don't know in economics. And then on the libertarian civil liberties issues, they make excuses for the demolition of civil liberties and the and the destruction of the Constitution. And so and so, of course, my writing, which is why they hate me so much, and that right. and that I just lay it all out there, and I don't make the excuses. In fact, I say, well, this is an abomination that he did this, um, and and they don't they don't like that. And I also happened to have read uh, the book uh, by uh, Fogel and Engerman, Engerman on slavery. That uh, you know, on the economics of slavery, where they lay out how all the other countries of the world ended slavery peacefully through some sort of compensated emancipation. Right. And uh, there's there's a great book that's been written since then by Jim Powell. It's called Greatest Emancipations, which is an excellent survey of how all the other countries of the world ended slavery peacefully. That's why he calls them the greatest. And and that accord with me because. The war, the, the, the historians now today say the war ended up with as many as about 750,000 dead Americans. And that's when the, the country had a population of 30 million. And so if you standardize for today's population, that would be about 7.5 million Americans dying in four years. And it struck me that, that that was quite a high cost to pay if that was the, you know, the cause of ending slavery when all the rest of the world, including Massachusetts and New York, ended slavery without a war. There was some violence involved in places around the world, but, uh, but no war of any kind, that, uh, certainly not any that killed hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, so that's how I got in, into all this. And, and also, by the way, kind of interestingly, right before I got started in writing on Lincoln, Joey Rothbard, of all people, Murray Rothbard's wife, Joey, dear old Joey, the last, she wrote a big long paper on Lincoln and the war, mm-hmm. and said many of the same kind of things that I say in my book about it. and uh, And I had a copy of her manuscript at the time, and I think she presented it at one of the early Mises Institute conferences, and which is why I had a copy of her manuscript. and uh, And and, so, and of course, Murray Rothbard himself gave a talk at the uh, the conference that the Mises Institute had on uh, secession. And which is now a book. It turns it into a book. And and he so he was interested in that. And I was intrigued by what Murray Rothbard had to say about the whole subject also. And I thought uh, it deserved more research and more writing and, and more elaboration than what Murray and Joey had, had heroically done. Uh, Joey was a Virginian, so maybe she had sort of a, a, a familial uh, incentive to, to write mm. up that article. No, I forget. You're, no. you're a Yankee, right? Yeah, I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, uh-huh. halfway between Pittsburgh and Erie. So a friend of mine in South Carolina asked me where I was from, and I, I told him, he said, well, that's way up there. That's the deep north. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me, I, I'd like to focus on, um, you know, the, the cause of the war. You know, I, I jotted down a few things when I was looking through your book here, but you know, this is such an important one. So let me just read a, a quick passage. Most of this stuff, Tom, I think we can just do off the top of your head. But this one, I, this quote I yeah. hadn't seen before. So Lincoln on the causes of the war. So this is coming from page 26. And let's see, you, you, so this is you talking. Lincoln start, started the address. So this was an addri- his first inaugural address, March 4th, 1861. Lincoln started the address out with what is arguably the strongest defense of Southern slavery ever, ever made by a U.S. president or any American politician quote, there has never been any reasonable cause, end quote, for apprehension by the people of the South over slavery, he announced. Proof of that fact, Lincoln said, and now quoting Lincoln, is found in nearly all the published speeches of him who now addresses you. Later, he says, he, he quoted from one of his old speeches in which he said, quote, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. 
And then later, those who nominated and elected me did so with full knowledge that I made this and many similar declarations and I have, ne and I have never recanted them. And then you also mentioned, I won't quote from Elich, you just talk about it, Tom, that he's saying the Republican Party, quote, placed in the platform for my acceptance, the clear and emphatic resolution, which I now read, and he's reading from the Republican Party's platform for that, you know, what, the 1860 election. Yes. So do you remember, do you need me to look it up or do you remember off the top of your head some of the things that were in that? In the resolution? It's, it's yeah, it's on page, it's on page 27. Um, yeah, well, so I don't want to misquote, I don't want to misquote yeah. myself. <laughs> right, right. I have the book in front of me here now, but. Uh, yeah, so it, it would be on page 27 if you just want to look at that so you know where I'm, where I'm drawn from. So I'm, I mean, you don't need to necessarily read, quote, but it's just mentioning how they're not going to interfere with the institutions oh, yeah. of the South. And clearly, what, what do they mean by that? They mean slavery. Well, yeah, they, they call them the domestic institutions of the states by which they meant slavery. Mm -hmm. What well, says, you know, resolve that this is the platform that the maintenance inviolate of the rights of the states, and especially the right of each state to order and control its own domestic institutions, according to its own judgment exclusively is essential to that balance of power on which the perfection, endurance, and endurance of our political fabric depend. And so the Republican Party platform said that the uh, uh, protecting slavery is essential to the balance of power on which the perfection and endurance of our political fabric depends. So they actually said, uh, you know, our, our government can only endure if we protect slavery. That was So they were imploring mm -hmm. the South to not leave the Union in, in doing that, and, right. and Lincoln quoted it in a verbatim right in the body of his first inaugural address. And, and even more than that, and near the end of the speech, he endorses the, the Corwin Amendment to the Constitution, which had already passed the House and Senate, which was controlled and dominated by the Republicans at the time, that would have prohibited the federal government from ever interfering in Southern slavery. And I print the whole text of the Corwin Amendment and Lincoln's first inaugural address in, in appendices in the in my book, The Problem with Lincoln, and mm -hmm. uh, and so and I also I also discovered that uh, uh, Lincoln uh, lied about this in his in his first inaugural. He says, "I haven't seen it, but I understand a constitution has been uh, brought for uh, or a constitutional amendment has been brought forth that would do this." That would, and then he says, "And I have no problem with making it, in his words, express and irrevocable." That is making the the prevention of uh, doing anything about slavery expressed and irrevocable in the Constitution. But what I discovered when I read uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's large thousand-page book on Lincoln, it's called Team of Rivals, she dug up uh, primary sources to show that this amendment came from Lincoln himself. Even though in his first mm -hmm. inaugural, he says, well, I haven't seen this amendment. But she found out that it was his idea. He got William Seward, who was to become his Secretary of State, to get and who was a senator from New York to get the amendment passed through the Senate, which he did, and so and that is in conflict with Lincoln's own statement that well I haven't seen it. But if you think about that, here's Abe Lincoln making his first inaugural address. A constitutional amendment has passed the House and the Senate that would have prevented the government from ever interfering with slavery. Slavery being a very big uh, point of discussion at the time, and he hasn't seen it. He, he hasn't he has seen it. He has, there's no curiosity at all about it. He, he didn't ask somebody, hey, I just read in the Washington Post that the House and Senate passed a uh, constitutional amendment. Maybe I should know about it. No, he claimed that he hadn't seen it. And that, that's just not believable. And, that, right. and Doris Kearns Goodwin, of course, pretty much proves that not only had he seen it, but it came from him. And so, uh, so uh, Honest Abe told a big whopper in his first inaugural address and then, of course, I argue in the same speech, if you just read it, he, uh, he uses the words invasion and bloodshed to describe what will happen to any state that refuses to collect tariffs, at the, at the, the tariff tax, mm -hmm. which had just been more than doubled two days earlier and signed into law by President Buchanan, the moral tariff. And so he literally threatened invasion and bloodshed and war on any state over tax collection. But he bent over backwards to, uh, to defend slavery. And, and I say in the book that the only type of coercion he was uh, concerned with was he promised to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act in that same speech, which was a, a law passed in 1850 
that basically compelled uh, Northerners to run down runaway slaves and return them to their owners. And Lincoln enforced that in Washington, D.C. during his presidency. There were slaves that were captured, runaway slaves that were captured in D.C. And, uh, and they, they continued to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act and, uh, and return them uh, to the so-called owners. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I lied. Let me read one more thing here. And th- this is old hat, Tom, obviously for Civil War buffs and whatnot. But just yeah. in, on the off chance, some listeners had never heard this one before. And they and you know they were taught no Lincoln went to war to free the slaves. What are you talking about? He's our greatest president because he ended slavery. So this is this is from page twenty nine of your book. So in August of eighteen sixty two, and I'm just going to read this just because this is the big the smoking gun. Lincoln writing his famous letter to the New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley. Quote. So this is quoting Lincoln, and again this is from summer of eighteen sixty two, folks. So keep that in mind. My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it would help to save the Union. Okay, so my question then, Tom, is: it seems to me that's like, unambiguous, like how could anyone possibly deny that? So I'm curious, what do the pro-Lincoln historians say when they want to make it out that, no, Lincoln really, you know, we should credit him with ending slavery and, and, you know, this was a moral cause and that's why he, yeah, all those hundreds of thousands of people are dead, but Lincoln, you know, had to do it to free the slaves. They mostly ignore it. You know, it's not, it's even more powerful than that. I also, in in an appendix to my book, The Problem with Lincoln, I have, an, I have the Crittenden-Johnson Resolution, which is also known as the War Aims Resolution, where the Congress announced the purpose of the war. So you have Abe Lincoln, mm-hmm. what you just read, it, saying the purpose of the war is to keep the Union together. It has nothing to do with slavery. I'll read you one line from the, the official U.S. Congress War Aims Resolution, which is where the, here's the Congress announcing to the world what the purpose of the war is. Quote, this war is not waged upon our part in any spirit of oppression, nor for any purpose of conquest or subjugation, nor purpose of overthrowing or interfering with the rights or established institutions of those states, but to defend and maintain the supremacy of the Constitution and to preserve the Union, end quote. So there's, there's the announce that we don't intend to interfere with the rights and established institutions by which they meant slavery. And so the whole, not only Lincoln, but the Congress said the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's not about slavery. And it's been my experience that the historians just ignore this. They've written book after book about his second inaugural address, but they ignore the first inaugural address, which I call Lincoln's slavery forever speech. And they they Mm -hmm. just tend to ignore it. And, uh, and then when, uh, for example, when I when I make the point that if you read this speech, he, he threatens war over tax collection, but bends over backwards and does backflips to assure the world that um, it has nothing to do with slavery. Uh, I was actually in a debate in a magazine, a Civil War magazine, years ago when my first after my first book came out, where we did a debate online back and forth, and then they published it in the Civil War magazine. And, uh, and then I made the case, I made this case that uh, Lincoln himself said the war is about tax collection. And, uh, and but they just ridicule it. They just, they, the response mm-hmm. was just say, uh, call it, oh, that's an old saw, that's an old myth, and, and, and things like that. And I, I knew I won this debate, though, because it was with a professor of history from East Carolina University. And uh, I get the, the magazine in the mail, you know, the hard copy. And there's my side of the debate and the professor from East Carolina State. And then they added James McPherson on his side without me knowing it and without asking me to respond to what James McPherson said. So that told me I must have won the debate because they they had to bring in the big gun, James McPherson from Princeton, (laughs) to make it two against one. And he did the same thing because I had done a pretty elaborate discussion in my part of the debate of the effects of the tariff and why it – disproportionately harmful to farmers in particular in the South being an agricultural society. It, it, uh, they, it made them feel they're being plundered by the protectionist tariff for the benefit of Northern manufacturers. And so that, I guess they figured that if, 
they would just argue by authority by bringing McPherson in here. And right. I even cited a textbook, uh, an international trade textbook, to make the point that here's sort of the the economic thinking of the economics profession on, on tariffs, because these historians just couldn't get it. They just seemed like I could, just couldn't understand the economics of tariffs. And I was making the point that here's what the mainstream of my profession says about this. And McPherson just uh, mocked the fact that I quoted a textbook and not a, a, a treatise or something on tariffs, mm-hmm. you know. And so so that's how they've treated it. They sort of mock it mm-hmm. or ignore it. Another element of this, again, this is, you know, simple stuff for for people who are advanced in this, but the Emancipation Proclamation, which I think probably most Americans believe, oh, yeah, all the slaves were freed under that. And no, actually, you know, what's the way the, the, the cynic will put it is Lincoln freed the slaves that he had no authority to do, and he didn't free the slaves that he did yeah. under the Emancipation Proclamation. Right, exactly. So do you, can you want to explain <laughs> like, what, 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 is, what do the people, what does the cynic mean when he says it like yeah. that? Well, I, I also include uh, in, in an appendix in my book, them, The Problem with Lincoln, the full body of the Emancipation Proclamation. And, you, and so anybody can read it uh, for themselves. And it says that it, it applies only to uh, the states in rebellion, it says. And so, of course, the U.S. government had no ability to emancipate anybody, anybody in the states in rebellion any more than they had the ability to influence England or Spain or France. It was a, you know, they had seceded from the Union, and their armies were in control of those areas. But at the same time, the Union Army at the time was in control of certain areas. West Virginia was the last slave state to enter the Union during the Lincoln administration. The, the, the Lincoln administration orchestrated the secession of West Virginia, carving it out of Virginia, illegally and unconstitutionally, I would add, because the Constitution says it requires a vote of the state and Virginians did not vote to give West Virginia to Abe Lincoln, but he did anyway. But but that was exempt. It's in, in paragraph four of the Emancipation Proclamation. The whole state of West Virginia, which had slaves, was exempted from it, as were all the parishes in Louisiana where uh, the Union Army was in charge and control at the time are mentioned by name and in the body of the Emancipation Proclamation. So that's why when, when some historians say he, uh, he freed the slaves where he had no ability to, you know, quote, freed the slaves where he had no ability to free the slaves. And, uh, and that's what they're referring to. So it didn't free anybody. When you think about it, if the Emancipation Proclamation did free the slaves, why would they go through all the trouble of passing the 13th Amendment to the Constitution that ended slavery if, if slavery was already ended? And so and Lincoln was mocked and ridiculed by people at home and abroad for this. And, and for good reason. They thought it was hypocritical. The purpose was probably, in my opinion, to instigate slave rebellions, which never happened. That didn't work doing that to do that either. And it also he also calls it in the in right in the body of the, the document a, a war resolution, meaning if the South joined the Union the next day, rejoined the Union the next day, it would have become uh, void and of no consequence. And so that's that's what Lincoln's words were himself about it. Just in the interest of fairness, so I looked up and I was trying to find Tom, like what is the, what would the pro-Lincoln historians say about that? So I believe the argument they make is to say Lincoln was such a scrupulous follower of the Constitution that he said, I don't have the authority to interfere <laughs> with what states are doing in terms of slavery but the ones in rebellion, that, that's sort of like anarchy, and so military rule applies. So that's why, you know, we can, under the cover of, you know, wartime emergency, I'm allowed to do whatever I want, basically, in areas in rebellion. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why I have the authority to, to issue a, an order freeing that, mm-hmm. those slaves. But the other ones, there it's the rule of law, and I, as, you know, the mere commi- uh, president, don't have the authority, to, you mm-hmm. know, because of states' rights. Yeah, so they're basically saying Lincoln so respected states' rights, that's why he couldn't free slaves <laughs> in Union-controlled territory. Yeah. yeah, well, that's a bunch of baloney because several of his generals were, were they were sort of uh, out of his control for a while. They were out in the field in uh, in Georgia and and in, 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 in a few other places, just issued their own orders. You know, the Union army came in, they won a battle, took over the towns. Uh, you know, an area there, and they issued their own emancipation order, and Lincoln mm-hmm. uh, not only uh, rescinded it, but f- uh, fired the generals uh, for doing that in the war. So 
So uh, and that would be a complete contradiction of what you just said, what the historians say about his, he was such a stickler for the Constitution and he wanted mm-hmm. to use the military to free the slaves in the, in the, in the southern states. Well, he had opportunities to do that, but the, the military commanders who did do that mm-hmm. earlier in the war, he, he kicked them out of the commands and uh, uh, Fremont was, uh, was one of them, and uh, General Fremont, and, and, and sent them somewhere else. And so that, that contradicts what's being said there. And of course, uh, the same historians praise Lincoln for being a destroyer of the Constitution. There's a book by a, uh, uh, a Columbia University historian named Fletcher, a law professor named, not a historian, a law professor named Fletcher. It's called Our Secret Constitution. And he praises Lincoln to the treetops for ignoring the Constitution, uh, illegally suspending habeas corpus and, and things like that. And so, uh, so I don't buy that argument for that reason, mm-hmm. too. So I guess related, if we could move on to, you know, this issue of war crimes and whatnot. So when it's not merely on the issue of secession, but even given that the North is going to wage a war to bring the Southern states to heel, it, it, what, they didn't follow standard rules of conduct and they, you know, did all sorts of things. So just in, in your book, I meant that metaphorically, not, I mean, yeah. it is literally in your book too. But just some of the things, for again, for the, the benefit of the listener who's just never heard this before, like they were just taught Lincoln was a great president, and I'm sure he was very tenderhearted. <laughs> and so it's not merely that, you know, oh, gee, I don't like the fact that he didn't let the state secede, but just the conduct of the war. And also, if you could talk to, could, could we just say, well, Lincoln didn't know what his generals were doing. Like, he didn't know what German, uh, what Sherman was doing. Lincoln was out of the loop. He had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they sort of portray him as Joe Biden, don't they, when, when it comes to war <laughs> crimes. <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the things that probably made the, uh, the Lincoln scholars, as they call themselves, really angry with me is that I quoted, you know, the, the dean of Civil War historians for many years was James McPherson, the Princeton uh, his, history professor. And uh, one of his books, I quoted him uh, extensively as bragging about what a micromanager Abe Lincoln was of the war effort. He said he spent more time in the War Department telegraph office than he did in the White House during the war. And he was, you know, arguably the most hands-on micromanager of any war Americans have ever been involved in, and, and on and on and on like that. But then at the same time, he's supposed to be totally in the dark of what his armies are doing at the same mm-hmm. time. And, and, uh, and, uh, and it's just nonsense uh, to believe that. And so when and also when, you know, Sherman gets to uh, uh, General Sherman gets to Atlanta, the Confederate army is gone. Eighty to 90 percent of the population of the city is gone. There's only women and children and old men left. And, and then he's, and he spends four days having his uh, artillery bomb the city. And, uh, and I cite uh, I cite a book about Sherman saying that. In one day, 5,000 artillery shells fell on Atlanta during this bombardment, this four-day bombardment, only of civilians and, and buildings. And, 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 and Sherman's military engineer, a man named Captain Poe, told him that it was of no military significance. And Captain Poe was looking through his uh, spy glasses and seeing the corpses of women and children in the streets and he was uh, uh, imploring Sherman to cut it out and stop it. And Sherman just coldly told him, no, it'll quicken the end of the war. And Lincoln rewarded Sherman and made him a big national hero uh, in, you know, during his time, before he died. And so, uh, and so the idea that he had, did, did not know about this is just not believable, because you can't be the, most, uh, the biggest micromanager of any American war, as the same historians tell us. And at the same time, be totally in the dark, because this was not the first incident of this. This had been going on for years. At the very beginning, they, they plundered uh, Manassas, Virginia. They waged war on civilians. They killed civilians all throughout the war with the bombing of cities and towns and, and the plundering and looting and arson that went on. I have one section of the book. It's entitled An Army of Pyromaniacs. Uh, detailing how they went in some places like in South South Carolina, uh, setting fire to house after house after house, you know, not just not military facilities, but private homes. And and Lincoln knew about all this and all the generals who did this were rewarded, promoted and made heroes. 
So I'm not buying it in the, in the, because I don't think it makes sense at all. And I think when you read about this, it shouldn't make sense to, to anybody else either. And besides just, you know, oh, well, the soldiers can get out of hand and, you know, who, 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 can, who can defend that war as hell, that sort of thing. But also, and you alluded to this, but again, just in the sake of completeness, I mean, Lincoln would do stuff. Like you said, he arrested a congressman. He would he would jail newspaper editors and so, and so forth who were against the war, like even in, in the North, right? Yeah. Well, and yeah, in the North, you know, if you, didn't, if you did a little, you don't have to read my books. You can go to a, a good university library and, and, and look up some of the books. Uh, there's one called Lincoln and the Constitution by, by a, a famous Civil War historian of the last generation. Um, and and they, they, they recount all these. There's one, a book called Freedom Under Lincoln by Dean Sprague, another university press book. He shut down over 300 uh, opposition newspapers. Some of the editors and owners were imprisoned for, for opposing the war. Uh, the mayor of Baltimore was imprisoned. Uh, Congressman Henry May of Maryland was imprisoned. And this was all without due process. These are people who were arrested by soldiers and dragged off to some gulag somewhere. There was a, a fort called La, Fort Lafayette in New York Harbor. There was sort of a, a gulag uh, set up for, for these, these sorts of people. Even the grandson of Francis Scott Key, who was a Baltimore uh, newspaper editor at the time, he wrote an editorial complaining about the illegal suspension of habeas corpus, and he ended up in prison at Fort McHenry of all places. And that, which was also a prison uh, that was set up for the political dissenters, and so that's an, another thing that I mean when I say that it's, it's, it's. I laugh when I hear the the historians say that Lincoln was such a stickler for the Constitution with the Emancipation mm-hmm. Proclamation, like he, you know, he wouldn't dare do anything that's unconstitutional. Well, the the invasion of the Southern states itself was an act of treason. In my book, the problem with Lincoln, I, I. I Quote Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution, which defines treason. It says treason against the United States is only, use the word only, defined as uh, levying war upon them, use the word them, or giving aid and comfort to their enemies. And so them and their are in the plural. That means the phrase United States refers to the individual states that were united in creating a, a confederacy of states. It's in the plural. So levying war against the individual states is a definition of treason in the Constitution. That's exactly what Lincoln did. He levied war against the southern states. So he and everybody who participated in the war were guilty of treason under the Constitution. But during the war, Lincoln took it upon himself to redefine treason as criticism of himself and his administration's policies. That's how they, quote, justified the mass arrest of all these people, the newspaper editors, uh, ordinary people on the street who overheard saying things uh, mm-hmm. that they thought were detrimental. Lincoln even made one speech that I quote where he said the man who remains silent while his government is being discussed is guilty of treason. And that's uh, very creepy. Our friend Yuri Maltsev uh, once told me that that's what they did in the Soviet Union. That, mm-hmm. that they could accuse you of treason just because you didn't praise uh, Gorbachev or whoever the, the dictator of the day ha- happens to be. They could, they would use that if they wanted to put you in prison for some other reason. They would use that as mm-hmm. a reason under communism. But uh, it's, but it's the same thing that Lincoln said. Speaking of that, I seem to remember. Do you, I don't know if you, if this is at your fingertips. Didn't the Soviet government, when they were cracking down on, I don't know if it was Hungary or if it was much later, you know, when this, when they were, you know, the, the socialist republics were trying to break away and they cracked down and didn't they say, no, we're just using, we're just doing what Lincoln did, like to get the U.S. to shut up, you know, in, in terms of the court of public opinion internationally? Yeah, they, they do that. Tyrants all over the world, that's true. Tyrants all over the world have, have done that. Uh, you know, one of my more incendiary articles on lewrockwell.com was uh, after I debated Harry Jaffa in California, after the, my other book came out, uh, I, I knew he was going to pull this, but he, he was fond of saying things like when, when he criticized Judge Robert Bork, for example, Bork wrote a book on the Constitution. He would mm-hmm. say, Jaffa would say things like, well, Bork sounds a lot like John C. Calhoun and Jefferson Davis. That was Jaffa's way of saying, 
well, maybe Bork is a closet neo-Confederate, and so we should ignore right. him. And, and so he always sort of pulls that sort of thing. And he did that with me when I, uh, when I uh, debated him. And then he would often sort of say something like uh, he equated the uh, Confederates with Hitler. Jaffa did. And so right. he would say, I think he said something to the effect when I debated him that, well, yeah, Hitler would probably agree with Di Lorenzo. Oh, oh, that's, yeah, that's a debate line, a real zinger. So I went mm-hmm. home and I, I, re, I recalled that yeah, in college, way back when, I took a course in European history and we actually read some parts of the uh, Mein Kampf from Adolf Hitler. So and I remember there was a chapter in there on federalism, states' rights. So I went out and bought a copy of Mein Kampf, put it in a brown paper bag, and you know walked out of the st- store with it. <laughs> and there, because I, I wanted to re, I wanted to reread that chapter, which I did in the bookstore also. But sure enough, there's Adolf Hitler quoting Lincoln's first inaugural address, where where Lincoln denies state sovereignty, and Hitler was using Lincoln's own words to make the case for abolishing state sovereignty in Germany at the time and creating a highly centralized dictatorship in Germany, like Lincoln had done in America. And then and, uh, another thing I cite in my book, The Problem with Lincoln, is when the, when the Pakistani dictator Musharraf, about, maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, seven years ago, I forget when it was, uh, declared martial law in his country, he justified it by quoting Abe Lincoln, because Abe Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and had mm-hmm. military rule in the North, in his country. And so, uh, and so yeah, that's, there's a long history of tyrants around the world using Abe Lincoln as their example. Mm-hmm. Another uh, negative offshoot of all this or consequence you, you talk about in this book, and, and again, folks, Tom and I are here talking about the problem with Lincoln. The link, of course, would be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 137, and I'll link to all this other stuff Tom and I have been talking about. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned the uh, what happened to the Plains Indians. And so do you, do you want us to speak, speak to that? Well, yeah, uh, you know, Murray Rothbard, uh, in, in his, he wrote an essay called Just War. Your listeners might be, if they're interested in this whole topic, they might Google that and find his, Murray Rothbard's article online called Just War, where he, he discusses a lot of these things. And one of the things he mentions is that a friend of Lincoln's named Grenville Dodge was made a general. And Grenville Dodge became the chief engineer of the transcontinental railroads after the war. But Murray Rothbard said during the war, uh, Grenville Dodge's job as a general was to kill off as many Indians as he could who, who, who were in the way of where they wanted to build the Transcontinental Railroad. So he sort of commenced the Indian Wars during the Civil War by mm-hmm. getting the Indians out of the way for where they wanted to build railroads. And so in, in part of my book, The Problem with Lincoln, uh, I talk about uh, you know part of the legacy of the waging of war in the South was all the same generals Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, Custer, they all literally two months after the end of the Civil War, Sherman was put in charge of uh, what was called the Military District of the Missouri. And, uh, and uh, the whole country was, was divided into military districts as though the states no longer existed for a while anyway. And this was all the land west of the Mississippi. And his job was basically to wage a, a war of genocide against the Plains Indians to make way for the government-subsidized transcontinental railroads. Uh, I quote Sherman as saying, we're gonna, not going to let a few few uh, thieving Indians, he called them, stand in the way of the progress of the railroads. And so I, I discussed there how all of these, uh, these generals, who were, who were called Civil War luminaries, uh, turned right around and waged a, a war of genera- genocide, basically against uh, uh, the another colored race, the India, the Native Americans, and the Indians, and they ended up killing, according to a one historian that I of the subject that I quote in the book, about forty-five thousand, and that included many women and children, and then the rest were put on uh, reservations. Uh, where and, her, and I quote Sherman as saying, "Where they can be watched," and of course he became. Uh, uh, among his famous slogans at the time were, um, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he also, I quote him also as saying that what he was doing was what he called, quote, the final solution to the Indian problem, end quote, which is kind of a creepy phrase because Hitler used final solution. I'm not saying Hitler got this language from William Tecumseh Sherman, 
but it's just mm-hmm. kind of creepy to read the, read that those words coming out of General right, Sherman right. so many years before before that, and so uh, so that and that's very telling because you you know General Sherman himself I quote him as saying that uh, he, you know he, one reason he was doing this is uh, just just as he opposed interracial marriage between whites and blacks as Lincoln did. He didn't want to see interracial marriage between Indians and, and whites either. And, uh, and Sherman himself, I quote him as saying, "That happened in Mexico, and they've created a race of mongrels." He called the he called a big part of the population of Mexico mongrels because there had been intermarriage with uh, Native Americans or Indians, and that's that's telling because most Americans think that these were these people were racial heroes, racial saints, mm-hmm. you know, uh, waging the civil war against evil, evil Southerners, but they weren't. And this is who right. they were. And, yeah, and what I th- was thinking about that when I was reading your book on, you know, the treatment of the Plains Indians and how you're, like you're saying, the same generals that came in and slaughtered a bunch of Southern civilians then turned their guns literally on uh, the Native Americans to make way for the railroad. And, yeah, and they, they, I'm and sure there's a lot of recruited blacks, ex-slaves, black ex-slaves, mm-hmm. to be the so-called buffalo soldiers to to kill mm-hmm. the Indians. And it's mm-hmm. uh, you know they celebrate the buffalo soldiers because they were among the first to be you know black people to be in the U.S. Army and all that. But what they were doing in the U.S. Army was reprehensible. Yeah, but the so what struck me though is like I'm sure there's plenty of modern day, let's call them social justice warriors, for lack of a better term, who would praise, you know, oh, yes, Lincoln's army is going in and freeing the, the you know, the slaves and, and and sticking it to the the white patriarchs in the South. But yet they'd also be horrified at the oppression and genocide of the Native Americans by the evil white man. And it's kind of ironic that, no, it's the same group of people, you know, so yeah. maybe you shouldn't be so quick to endorse yeah. You know, rampant yeah. warfare and, and slaughter, just because you happen to agree with the cause in one instance, that that's going to be used yeah. in a way you disapprove of. Yeah, and it might it might cause you to uh, question the uh, the motivation for the slaughter of the Southerners too. You know, if if, mm-hmm. if they weren't uh, the racial saints that you thought they were, well, maybe they weren't one year earlier either. You know, if they weren't right. racial saints in eighteen sixty six. Well, maybe in 1865 they weren't so saintly either in, in what they're doing in the South. And, and you know, Bob, I have a, a whole chapter called Lincoln's Greatest Failure. And it's about – it's much of it is a kind of review of the, this book by Jim Powell uh, called Greatest Emancipations that talks about how all the rest of the world ended slavery peacefully. Uh, and they found, they found a way to do it. Uh, England, uh, even Ron, Ron Paul, who has read, read my other books on the subject, was on one of the network televisions back when he was running for president, and uh, and somebody asked him a question. I forget who, which. I think it was uh, one of the big commentators on this MSNBC. I think it was uh, asked him about the Civil War question, and and and, and he said, "You don't even think we should have had um, waged the Civil War to free the slaves, do you?" And Ron made my point that well, uh, we could have done what England did and used tax dollars to buy the slaves and then end it all legally. If the alternative was getting involved in a war that killed 750,000 people and, and, and all the economic destruction and the, the diversion of capital that took generations to recover from North and South in, in the war. And I'm sure that the, anybody who heard that was kind of shocked. But that's mm-hmm. uh, that's an important point, I think, that I make and, and needs to be made because most Americans would think if they, oh, there was slavery in the British Empire and the Spanish Empire, there must have been some big war. That uh, you know that they somebody ended slavery with a big war, but no, only in America was there a war associated with, with the ending of slavery. And so I make the case in my book that uh, we could have done what everybody else in the world uh, did if I, if we had a real statesman as a president, rather than a guy who uh, threatened invasion and bloodshed of his own people of tax collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's even worse than that, Tom. I think most Americans, to the extent they think of it at all vaguely kind of think that slavery was this uniquely American thing and that slavery didn't exist. And then in the founding of the colonies, uh, you know, some, some Americans in the South invented slavery and then Lincoln ended it. Thank goodness. Obviously I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the way you hear people discuss it, 
you could understandably walk away thinking that slavery was this unique thing that happened in the American South yeah. on plantations and as opposed to being a worldwide institution that went back to antiquity. So right, 3,000 right. years. Yeah, 3,000 mm -hmm. years. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, the, when the Muslims enslaved the Christians, you know, in antiquity, they were all white slaves. And, and so all civilizations, had, you know, for 3,000 years, that slavery uh, of, of some kind. And uh, if you get into this literature, you'll find out that uh, uh, of all the slaves that were brought to the Western Hemisphere from Africa, about 5% of them ended up in, in America, in the United States. The other 95%... Somewhere in South America, the West Indies, you know, somewhere else in, in the Western Hemisphere. But we had we ended up about five percent. So yeah, you're right. Americans don't don't know this, and they they and, and we're purposely we're taught just a few slogans about Abe Lincoln in elementary school, and then they're repeated for the rest of our lives, and and we're supposed mm -hmm. to believe them all. But uh, and that's been my experience of what the average American knows. I guess the last, I, I'm going to respect your time here. So I guess the last question I have for you, Tom, is what's the ex, what's your explanation? Why is it that it seems like the school system is geared towards, you know, elevating Lincoln when people say, who are the greatest presidents? I mean, they, they necessarily have to be wartime presidents. Yeah. Who, a bunch of people died under watch. Like that's that's a given yeah, to right. say who's the great. Yeah. But why, is, why is, is it Lincoln? You know, you would think maybe going to war against the Nazis or, but it's, it's, it's always Lincoln yeah. is, you know, the hands down favorite. So what's your explanation in terms of, you know, where, what's the motivation for the people doing that? Why, why is that the outcome? Yeah. Well, I, I write about it in the next to last chapter of the problem um, with Lincoln. I, I quote a book that was published in 1943 by a man named Ira Cardiff. It's called The Deification of Lincoln. And I couple that with a discussion of another book called The Unpopular Mr. Lincoln by Larry Tagg. And Larry Tagg makes the case based on uh, primary documents that Lincoln was uh, the most hated and reviled of all American presidents in history during his lifetime. And why wouldn't it be? He suspended habeas corpus. He mass arrested northern thousands of northern civilians. He, he, in, uh, he invoked conscription. And, and drafted and, and ordered the shooting of deserters in his army after they conscripted them into his army. So, you know, why wouldn't they hate him? And they did. But but because he was uh, became a martyr after he was assassinated, the Republican Party and the clergy, the New England clergy especially, mm -hmm. turned him into a secular saint. And so Ira Cardiff, this author who wrote the book in 1943, said that uh, Americans don't even prefer to know the real Lincoln. They prefer what he calls the supernatural Lincoln, and they sort of associate themselves with the saintliness of this image that was created after his death. And it was really, it's almost funny to read about this, because Lincoln himself was never a Christian. His own wife called him an infidel. His law partners called him an infidel. They said he never was a, never a believer in God. But, but, you, but the, some of the very first books that were written about him after his death made it sound like he spent most of his time in the White House on his knees praying to God. And, and he, there, were, there were images of him ascending from a tomb with angel's wings, for example, some of the art, 19th century artwork in Harper's Magazine. And that took hold. And this is sanctification of, uh, of Lincoln. And, and so by the, time you, and th by the time you get to 1943, Ira Cardiff said, you probably can't find the publisher who would publish a book that tell, talks about the real Lincoln, because there's been so much uh, hysteria. He used the word hysteria over Lincoln. He said Americans prefer hysteria. And another point about this, well, maybe a final point I'll make is, I also quote the book, uh, The Legacy of the Civil War by Robert Penn Warren, famous author, author of All the King's Men and many other novels. He was asked to write this book in 1960 on the centennial of the Civil War. And he said that myth of Lincoln, the supernatural Lincoln, created what's called a treasury of virtue of the U.S. government. So much so that whatever the U.S. government did, Spanish-American War, involvement in World War I, was moral and virtuous by virtue of the fact that it was the U.S. government doing it. That's Robert Pensborn's idea. And so mm. It's not a surprise to me that the public schools have evolved in a way that sanctifies Lincoln because they equate Lincoln he is the he's the, the ideological cornerstone of the American state, the image of the American state. And that's one of the reasons why I've written these books. Uh, you know, I'm a libertarian. 
And I think it's a good idea to chip away at the ideological cornerstone of the unconstitutional American state. And by no other means, just informing people about reality and not the supernatural or the hysterical Lincoln that uh, the historians have portrayed him for be- as being for 150 years now. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Folks, my guest has been Tom DiLorenzo. You can get links to his new book, The Problem with Lincoln, and all the other stuff we discussed. It's going to be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 137. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Bob, and good luck with that new baby. Oh, <laughs> yes. It's, I, we got a good night's sleep last night, so it's oh, all right. Eureka. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Tom. Take care. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.